Good morning. Our scripture today is 1 Peter 5, 4-7. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. All right. How is everybody? Are we good? Oh, here it comes. All right. Awesome. Uh, my name is Tommy, and uh, I'm, I'm the pastor here. And uh, this is the part where I try to find stuff to say while I get my slides ready, and I kill time for a second. All right. Um, so our subject today is, um, I guess it's, it's sort of the transition, the space between uh, loving each other and, and what to do with that, our anxieties that we have. Um, sometimes their anxiety is about those that we love. And so the discussion we're going to have today is about um, the transition where Peter here goes from, so leaders, here's how you should serve and love your people. Um, and you should be humble and you should um, not think about yourselves but think about others. And while you're doing this, cast your anxieties upon Jesus. And so how does this all work together? How does this go? Um, and so I'm going to open us up in a word of prayer, and we're going to jump right into verse 4 and work our way right through the passage all the way to verse 7. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for everything that you are doing for us. Thank you for everyone that you've brought here this morning. Thank you for the amazing morning of, of worship that we've already had. Thank you for letting it continue. Um, your, your blessings are uh, abundant, and they are not unnoticed. And uh, we want to have thankful hearts and affirm your goodness in everything. And so I ask right now that you would calm us, that you would make us present, that you would allow us to um, center our hearts and our minds on you and, and push away all of the things that distract us and all of the anxiety that we have so that we can actually sit and talk about our anxieties and get a better view of them and how to deal with them. Bless our time together here this morning, God. In your name, amen. Uh, it's been a really good morning so far. It's been awesome. We've already, um, we've been worshiping a lot and, and we've been, uh, I've seen some amazing reconciliation, uh, some new followers of Jesus this morning. It's been, it's been awesome. So I'm like, oh, cloud nine, it's good. Better than that other week we had that wasn't very good. Um, all right, so I'm going to start here in verse four. Uh, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so I, there was a comment this morning about, I'm really, we're going to start with and. Like, yeah, you know, um, because it's continuing. This is the completion of um, last week's passage on elders. Now, so last week we, we talked about everything Peter has to say to the elders of the group and how they are to prepare the people for the suffering that is coming upon them and how they are to guide them into Christian living. And it's not necessarily, I mean, we read elders do this and we think, of the office of elders, as in a church, and you go to the website and you click on elders, and oh, those who, who the elders are. Um, it means that as well, but an elder, um, you may have someone in your life that you look up to spiritually, that you think um, is where you want to be, and you listen to them, and they, they speak, and you hang on every word because they're wise. They've been through things, and they've experienced things that you haven't, and that you figure you probably will go through, and so you listen to them, and you sort of model yourself after them, and it's sort of um, what Paul says about follow me as I follow Christ kind of thing. You see someone that gets it, and you want to get it, 
so you follow them. Um, you very well may be an elder to somebody. It's not an age thing. It's, uh, it's a gospel thing. It's, it's in there. And uh, there may be someone looking up to you as an elder. And so this conversation is not just happening to the leaders in the church, although it is happening directly to them, but it's also happening to all those who were generally looked up to um, and are a blessing to those around them. And so he says, he says, if you love and if you serve and if you don't strive for money or affirmation or power, don't lord it over them, it says, um, he says, and if you do this right, it says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So we need to talk about what he, what he means when he says the crown of glory. When we normally think of crown of glory, we think of... Um, Gold, we think of Disney Princess, we think of, uh, you know, a precious metal with like diamonds and, and precious stones encrusted in it uh, that only very rich royal people wear. Um, if that was what he was describing here, he would have used the word diadema, um, which there's an ancient hymn, I say ancient as in it was like a hundred years ago, um, it says, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all, the, the diadem, that's diadema, that comes from that word, it means... Uh, bring forth the crown and place it on the head of Jesus. Um, that's not what he is actually talking about here. The word he uses is the word Stephanos. Everyone say Stephanos. Yes, somebody was ready to go. Awesome. Um, Stephanos is a wreath made of wild olives and interwoven with parsley and bay leaves. Um, everything that you see in ancient um, Roman times has meaning, and there's a story behind it, and it's really good to know those stories. And so uh, the wreath itself has a story. Maybe you've seen it when you've seen the bust of, of uh, like, Caesar, or um, you see, you know, Nero, Domitian, all of the ancient Roman emperors. Whenever they are pictured, they always have this sort of wreath around their heads. It comes out from their ears, and it's, it's usually made of these things— um, Wild olives, interwoven with parsley and bay leaves, everything you, you get in a salad at Olive Garden, you'd find here. Um, you just put it on their heads. And uh, they, okay, so the, the wreath has a story behind it. It comes from this. On the left here, um, this almost naked guy is Apollos. Um, that is the son of Zeus. Um, and he's pursuing um, a woman named Daphne. She is not, she's, she's a goddess. She's uh, the, the nymph goddess Daphne. Um, and apparently she didn't like him and he fell madly in love with her uh, as far as Greek mytholo- mythology goes. And he's pursuing her and she's running away like, no, you're gross. And she's running. Um, she runs down to the river as the story goes and she finds the river god, Panaeus. And she says, hey, you got to hide me because you're the river god and I'd, somehow I think you can hide stuff. Um, and he goes, okay. And so he turns her somehow into a tree. Um, and so here you have the transformation. You have her hands. You have the, the leaves coming out of her hands. You have sort of tree bark being formed around her legs um, and wrapping up around her. She's turning into a tree. And he comes down to the river and he realizes, as you do, that his lover has been turned into a tree. And he takes pieces from uh, the branches and he makes a wreath out of it. And he wears it on his head from that point on. Um, and this is where the wreath comes from. It's, uh, it, it symbolized in Roman times um, victory. It symbolized power. I'm not sure why it symbolizes victory because he kind of lost in my book. Um, he got a tree. That's what he got. Um, and it symbolizes um, just victory and honor and power. And it became the symbol of success 
and honor in all of Rome. So whenever you would uh, win a race in, in sort of uh, the Olympic Games, you would receive the wreath, and it would go over your head. It's the equivalent of the gold medal that we receive today. Um, whenever you would, if you were a soldier and you conquered a land, when you come back, they would put wreaths on their heads. They would go take these and fashion them, and, and it was a great honor to put this on the head of someone who had been victorious. And for the next 24 hours, while this wreath was green, um, they would wear it around, and people would see the royal green wreath, um, and they would praise you for whatever. They'd ask you to tell the story. What did you win? What did you do? What did you accomplish? And they would praise you and give you like free stuff and money, and, and they would just honor you for what you had done. Um, sort of in the way that at this moment we are honoring our women's U.S. soccer team, football, if you will. Um, and they've come back, and, and they are right now traveling, and they got a ticker tape parade in New York City, and their medals are put... Um, around their necks, and people are praising them for the victory that they've had. Now, um, much like the soccer game, the World Cup, and much like um, the wreath in ancient times, um, these, these things were known, glory is known to fade rather quickly. Um, I said uh, a few months ago that I, I was talking to somebody who um, ended up with their face on the cover of Time magazine. And it was this huge accomplishment, but he said, and, and someone asked, what was that like? And he said, well, it's, there's always a day after. So the next day, you, you know, you work your whole life and you achieve this thing and then the, you get honored. And then the next day you wake up, you're like, now what? Um, and so right now you may be able to name some of the basketball players from the soccer team. Um, three, four, five months from now. Oh, no, you can't name them? Come on. Um, Five months from now, a year from now, two years from now, if you throw those names out, people are going to, it's vaguely familiar, but who are they? What did they do? This is how earthly victories are. This is how life is. You, you win success. You are honored. You accomplish something. You win some big award. Uh, a few years down the road, somebody brings your name up and they're like, where did they go? What happened to them? There's always a day after the day after, Okay. The wreath fades. They would wear it. For those 24 hours, they were Greek gods. They were honored for everything that they did, and the time passed. Um, and so Peter says, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. You will receive something that does not fade. It is not like the accomplishments of this world that you strive for your whole life, and you finally get, and then you wake up the next day again. If you would somehow accomplish this huge thing and that was just the end of your life and that's how you went out, it would almost be easier. But no, you wake up the next day and you're, that's going to be forgotten pretty soon. I have to accomplish something else. And it's this never-ending striving. But he says, there is a way that you can live to where that crown of glory stays with you. For those of you who have done something incredible for somebody, you've been there at somebody's time of need, you've provided uh, a service for somebody that uh, you've met some need that they could never meet on their own, they will always look at you as a person of honor, a good person. When you look at these people when they walk in after they've had these huge accomplishments, for a while, right off the bat, you say, well, oh, look at that, they're, they're this person, they accomplished this. A few years down the road, you you're no longer known for that. You're just known for the kind of person you are. The kind of person you are stays with you. How you treat people, the kind of um, love you have for those around you. And so he says there is this wreath which does not fade, which whenever people look at you, they will see this and they will honor you. They, they will look at you as virtuous and good 
and they will follow you. You will find yourself being a lot more powerful than you thought you were, but it won't matter to you because your life is about serving. And so he, he follows that up with this. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Not just the elders, not just the leaders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility. And so the word he uses for humility is this really great idea. Um, clothe yourselves is the word egkomboastai. Egkomboastai. Try it. All right, not bad. Um, I'm probably saying that totally wrong, and that's kind of the reason I do this, because I want you guys to say it wrong, because then we're all wrong together, and it's just unity. Um, it, it basically means it's a, it's a protective article of clothing that ties on. Um, uh, in other words, so it goes over to protect in some way, ties around the, either the neck or the back. Basically, it has one of two meanings. It is an apron. Um, the person who is wearing the apron is engaging in activities with their hands. Uh, they're doing something that they don't want to get on their clothes. They're handling some kind of filth or something. Um, and they're wearing it. And, and so anyone wearing the apron is typically lower on the totem pole considered because there's this general idea that they wouldn't be wearing that apron if they weren't handling some pretty gross stuff. Um, and then the only other thing that this word could possibly mean is this. Uh, oh, not that. This. The royal stole. It was it's this royal garment that would go around you and it would tie in the back and it would cover your everyday peasant clothing. And when people looked at you, they would see honor and royalty and they would see someone who should be lifted up and praised for who they are. Now, these two things could not be farther from each other. The definition of these two things, complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, the general message that is happening here is that when you put on the apron and when you serve someone, that apron becomes a royal stole in the eyes of the person whom you are helping, whom you are there for. And this works the opposite way too. Um, Think about how we describe oftentimes our world leaders. We describe them in ways, there, there are bad leaders, there's bad senators, bad presidents, bad whatever. Um, they're a terrible leader, a terrible boss. A ter- why? Why are they terrible? Oh, they only care about themselves. They don't care about their underlings, the people underneath them. They just do not care. They're, they're involved in um, you know, groups that are funneling them money, special interest groups. And we don't like it when people live for themselves. Yet they think the suit, the presidential pin, um, the royal stole, the big pope hat, whatever, the whatever it is that they are wearing to symbolize power and honor, if they aren't serving the people under them, those clothes mean nothing. And so who do we talk about being a good leader, a good president? We talk about, well, they're a really great leader. Why? Because they serve the people. So the royal garment becomes an apron, and the apron becomes a royal garment. The person who is wearing the apron, who is serving you, if they are doing a good job, you respect that, and you honor that. Well done. We, we always do. The person who is wearing the royal stole, who's doing a bad job, who doesn't care about the people under them, um, it becomes the apron. How many times have we seen those YouTube videos of people saying, yelling at cops who are being bossy and, and domineering and saying, hey, you work for me. I pay your salary. People who aren't living this way 
we never look at this way. And if you want to look, be looked at this way, you will live this way. And so this is a really great idea. This is a really great word. Um, and so when Peter is writing this, there is, we talked about this a few weeks ago, there is a specific idea that he has. And it is this event. Again, Jesus, on John 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, pause. Um, Jesus, in other words, knowing that he's in charge of everything, knowing that he basically wears the royal stole, that he is the boss man. All things are under his power. Um, Verse 4, rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. This is that idea. This is egg come Verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, hold on. This is the author of this book. Remember, do not forget that. This is happening to him right now. He said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And he did. And here he is, writing this exact same message. Put on the towel, put on the garment, wrap it around yourself and serve. Wash the feet of those around you. Get the apron dirty with the filth of others. He says, you will understand this. And Peter did. And here he is telling them this exact same thing. So the viewpoint of the egg boas tie, the, the, how you look at the person wearing the apron. Some will look at you and say, well, they're wearing an apron. They're low. They're lowest of the low. But for the person that you are serving, you are their Lord in some sense, their Savior in some sense. Do you realize this is the first time Peter calls Jesus Lord? It's the first time. Um, this is a big deal. Uh, let's... Let's, let's move forward. And so look what Peter says to the entire congregation. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So he says, hey, all of you who are younger, I know you have these aspirations like all young people do, usually in their early 20s, for accomplishment and power. Um, the older people among you will explain to you that that doesn't do anything. It doesn't bring you anything. It's meaningless. It's useless. It's not what you think it is. He says, if you want to be honored, you want to be blessed, you want to be looked at in the eyes of others as a great man, a great woman, um, be subject to your spiritual elders. Pay attention to what they're doing, why they mean so much to you. Do you want to mean that much to other people? Find out why they mean so much to you. And, and do what they do. Serve and love. And so then we, get, we go to verse 7 here. Um, the, the conversation just absolutely changes. It goes right from serving and loving other people to casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Casting all your anxieties. So the conversation switches over to anxieties. He connects Christian love and service with the comfort that they need to help them deal with the things that are headed their way. What's headed their way? Um, they know what's headed their way. Pretty soon there's going to be a knock on the door. The Roman soldiers are going to be there. They're going to ask, hey, are you a follower of the Christ? And they're going to say yes. And they're going to be arrested. And they're going to be slowly killed in front of thousands of people. 
This is, what, this is what lies in their future. And so I imagine they have some anxieties. And they're terrified. And Peter tells them, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to focus on this. Love each other. Now, um, I'm going to talk about pools for a second. Um, my, uh, my, my son is six years old. Uh, his name is Priest. And when he was three years old, my wife took him for swimming lessons. And he would... Um, he, she would take him down into the pool and he would start screaming and yelling and clawing and trying to basically climb on top of her head. And she's like, no, no, come back down. Um, and he would be yelling things like, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, I'm gonna drown. Um, if you put him underwater, pull him back up, he would scream, I drowned. Um, and you're trying to explain to him, no. And she would, she would rub his back and she would speak calmly and softly. And she would say, you're not drowning, you're okay. You're okay, you're fine. Mama's here, I've got you, you're okay. You're fine. And it was this repetitious thing. She was basically a non-anxious presence in his life in that moment. He was terrified and she was non-anxious presence and she would just calmly comfort him. And slowly he would put one hand out and start splashing and he would a little farther out and then, and then he would start the other one and then eventually he would turn around and start splashing in the water and his fears would be calmed and he would start being able to face what he was up against. Um... um there's a writer named John Ortberg. He was kind of a disciple of Dallas Willard's, and he wrote a lot of books alongside of him. And he writes about this, and he says this. Jesus knew that no earthly situation has the power to put you outside of God's care. You are always in the hand of your Father. So when death itself comes for us, it will be like a child dipping in the pool. And we will come up saying, I drowned, I drowned, I drowned. And the Father will say, I had you the whole time. He says there is this idea that you get terrified and you get, you're so fearful and you don't realize that, that God is present and he's there and he's, he's rubbing your back and he's being talking in a soft voice. He's saying, I've got you. You're okay. You're all right. And he's just this non-anxious presence because he knows it's Jesus in the boat during the storm. He's not anxious. He's present. He's there. And he's asking you to look at him and lean on him and embrace him. Um, and, and this is how life should be faced. And I like that he kind of applies this, even death itself. I like that picture. When death itself falls upon us and our final sleep comes and we awaken in the presence of God and we look at him and we say, I drowned, I drowned, and he's there and he hugs you and he says, no, you didn't. I had you the whole time. You, you're okay. You thought it was over and it's not. And so... This is really important to understand. There was, back in the 50s, there was this big movement in psychology to tell parents, um, mothers were being told not to coddle their children, not to hug them when they were screaming and crying, not to pick them up and pat their back and, and, and speak this way to them, um, but rather to let them work it out. He, the, the idea was that they would become stronger and they'd be able to, they would be able to handle things on their own. Um, and there was this doctor named Dr. Harlow who didn't believe that this was right, and he wanted to set out uh, to do experiments, um, psychological experiments, and figure out what was the most healthy thing and how we react and what calms us and what helps us face our fears when we're scared. Um, and so, like he did in the 50s, uh, he did his, his experiments with monkeys, little baby monkeys. And um, so he, one of his experiments in, uh, involved... Um, uh, a baby monkey that it never knew its mother, and it was in a pen. And there were two sort of mothers that he made for the monkey. Pretty terrifying looking. Um, one of them, old picture. One of them is uh, on the left here. 
provided what mothers provide. She, this, she <laughs> provides um, uh, food. There's a bottle there. And the monkey can go anytime and be fed by that mother. And the thought is that they will grow close to that mother because she's feeding him. And um, the other one is he wanted it to look pleasant, although it looks terrifying. Um, it's made of terry cloth. It's very soft. And the monkey, um, it didn't provide any food. All it provided was sort of comfort, a comfortable place to sit. And so he ran these experiments, and it turns out every time he set the monkey loose, the monkey went straight to the wire monkey first to drink, and then it would spend the rest of the day on the lap of the terry cloth mother. And he would hug it, and get comfort, and feel, okay, I'm here, we're good, we're all right. And then once in a while, he would go and get a drink again, but he would never stay with the one who fed him. He would only go right back to the one who provided comfort. Um, and so then just to, I guess, change the experiment, the doctor invented this thing. This is a, um, a scary monster robot. <laughs> Hilarious. Love it. Um, and it's got snapping teeth and it's mixed noise and then claws going like this. Um, and like a jerk, he put it in the pen with the baby monkey. Um, and to see what would happen, what would the monkey do? Um, and it ran straight to the wire mother every single time, no matter how big the pen was. And he hugged, yeah, what a jerk, right? And he hugged, he hugged the, uh, the terry cloth mother and then something happened. After a few minutes of hugging the terry cloth mother, he would turn and he would start making menacing noises and he would look at the monster and he would start trying to scare away the monster and he was able to face the monster um, and try to scare it away. So what, what's happening here? What is this? Well, um, this goes into the idea of our, our we, have to, we have to look into the human neurosystem to really find out um, what is this? Why were we created in this way? Because people act the exact same way when we are terrified. Um, in the same way in the pool, if, if you, you're, you're given comfort for a few minutes, you're able to face your fears. Um, well, when you are terrified... Um, there is something called the sympathetic nervous system that starts firing. You were created in a way, um, it's this fight or flight mechanism that you have. Your heart starts racing, your breathing grows faster and, more, and, and shallower, your muscles become more tense, the blood leaves the brain um, and goes for the heart. So you're not spending a lot of time thinking, it goes straight to the heart and you just start running for your life back to your comforting place. When you get to the comforting place, and you are hugged and embraced and held and, and, and are, are given that space that you are, are used to being comforted from, um, the ner- sympathetic nervous system stops firing and the parasympathetic nervous system starts firing. Um, basically, your heart slows down, your breathing grows deep and even, your muscles start relaxing and blood flows back to the brain again. And you become relaxed and what happens is all of this blood and, and the, the brain, everything evening out, going back to the brain, you're, you're able to think and you're able to be calm, and you're able to turn after a few minutes of being comforted and held by the person who provides you love. Um, after a few minutes, you're able to sit and turn and face your fears and think about them. In other words, love casts out fear. The embrace of the comforter empowers us to face the things that once terrified us. This explains a lot of Jesus' actions. This explains all of the times where Jesus is being tried and being, ter- being terrorized basically with the threat of death, his times in the storm, the times when he's walking on top of the water, the times when um, 
Massive crowds are drawing, and he's just at peace. He is this non-anxious presence there for his people so they can find comfort, and they were empowered to face the fears that were coming upon them. And Peter says, casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. The idea here is that when you are facing fear, um, you need to embrace your community. There should be in your community, in your church community, your brothers and sisters, the family of God, there should be spiritual elders that you are looking up to, that you are learning from, that you are just trying to allow them to pour into your life. They, are, they provide comfort. They provide all these things. They provide the love of God And when you are terrified, you go to your comforter. You go to your Savior. You go to your Lord and Savior. And so the question is, well, how do I do that? How do I go to my Lord and Savior when I am terrified? He's not here. Do I just close myself off and spend time in prayer and reading and studying? Remember, um, the physical body of Jesus is not here. The ascension, he's just not, he's gone. He's not on this earth anymore. Actually, the scriptures tell us that we are, that, that Jesus has no physical body except for the church. We are the body of Christ. And so each of us hears in completely different ways from God. And so when you are terrified, when you are anxious, um, some of you connect through intense prayer. You need to go to the body of Christ. You need to find those people who are sort of what we call prayer warriors and you need to gather with them and you need to cry out to God. You need to pray and you need to weep and they need to lay hands on you and you just pray together. Find your comfort, and you will find a path to strength so you can turn and be able to face your fears with this menacing sort of, I got this, let's go. Um, some of you connect through a community. You need a hug from somebody. You need just to be there um, and, and embrace and wrap around somebody and just weep on their shoulders. And some of you are that person for people in the community and we appreciate that. We love that. You are necessary um, because in you, we are feeling the embrace of Christ. You are being the body of Christ when you hug someone who is in pain and you are there and you're a non-anxious presence and you are rubbing the back and you're just saying, look, it's okay. He's got you. It's all right. Uh, some of you connect through um, intellectual engagement. You need to sit at, at a nice mahogany table in the middle of a bunch of books and pour yourself um, a nice fancy beer with your buddies and talk about what's the worst thing that could, what's the best thing that could happen? How could this turn out? What does the scripture say about this? And dive into church history, see who's been through this, who hasn't been through this, and, and sort of dream about this stuff. You're going to gather with, with the ears and the mouth of God and you're going to speak truth to each other. And it's going to give you the strength to face your fears. Some of you connect through communion. And when I say communion, I mean good food. And you need somebody to cook you some biscuits and gravy and bring it over and you're going to sit and you're going to cry, eat cry. Just, <laughs> it's going to be so awful. It's going to look terrible. Um, and... And you're just going to be together and, and break bread and weep. And that person, the non-anxious cooker of, of southern foods, is going to be there and feed you 
and you are going to find peace. Cast your fears upon him because he cares for you. How do you cast your fears upon him? The church. We are the body of Christ. You have to be a part of a community of believers because things get very, very bad. And when they get very bad, throughout church history, it has always been the people of God that have stood up and have brought manna to those who needed it. Um, some of you have these ideas, these dreams. I, want, I just want to be a good person. I just want to be <coughs> considered virtuous and, and I want to be respected and looked up to. That's okay. That's not a bad thing. Scriptures lay out a way to do that. If you want to wear the stole, you have to put on the apron. It's the only way. The apron to the people that you are serving becomes this majestic, royal robe. They look at you in a way that you've never been looked at before when you are there, when you meet that need. And all of this centers around the idea of what Jesus did for us, who though he was equal with God, put it all aside, and waded into our filth and our mess. He was not afraid of it. And he actually was naked on the cross. And the scriptures say that he bore our sins and our guilt and our shame upon himself. He entered into your story, everything that you have been through, everything that you have done. He became that. And he hung on that cross and he put it to death. And he rose to new life. And he's saying, now I took your filth so you can, I took, I, I, I took all of your filth upon me so now you can wear my royal robes. This is what the gospel is. This is how resurrection works. And this is what we should do in this world. You look at people who are just in filth and you are not afraid to enter into it. And you say, you know what? I'm not afraid of being associated with you. I'm not afraid to to walk beside you and offer you support and help you gain some clarity and to speak the love of God into your ear and to put my arm around you and cry with you and spend time with you. And like I said last week, there will always be be people on the outside looking in and saying, how could you be with that person? How could you spend time with them? Because Jesus did that for you. And so you enter into their story, you bear their filth and shame with them. And we proclaim the resurrection. And so I don't know what all of you are dealing with today. I imagine there's some anxiety. There was a lot this morning in the earlier service, people were airing just terrible things that they were going through. Um, and then expressed, I'm so glad I'm back in a church. I'm so glad I'm, I'm here. I'm so glad that there's people that I can talk to. I've been separated for so long from the people of Christ. This is, this is how it works. Whatever anxieties you have, come this morning, take communion with us, um, cast it on the cross, bear it with other people, embrace cry, talk it out. Um, this is one of the jobs that we have. And in this, in serving each other in this way, we will find the strength to turn and face the monsters that are there in our presence. So our, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and prepare. You can go back and uh, take the elements. Um, communion is something that we do every week. It requires two things. It requires uh, bread and wine. The bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for all of us. The wine is the, the blood of Christ spilled for all of us. And um, it's a representation of the gospel. It's nothing mystical. 
It's nothing magical. It's just bread. It's common things. It's just bread and wine. It's very simple things that we are using to describe what Jesus has done for us and to remember what he did for us. And so um, our communion servers will go ahead and you guys can spread around the room and take some time, um, talk to Jesus, air some grievances if you need to. If you need to pray with somebody, find somebody right through these doors on the left. There's a prayer room and we will have somebody to pray for you if you need prayer. You can stick around afterwards and I'll pray with you as well. Um, But all of us um, who are followers of Jesus um, should be completely willing to be the body of Christ, the ears, the mouth, all of it, uh, the arms to embrace and to listen. Um, and then let's take some time and, uh, and respond with worship, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for being present, for being here. Thank you for binding all of us together in unity and in love. Thank you for being fully present and looking at us with absolute love because there are things which are terrifying in this world there are things which are just monsters and they're in our presence and we don't know what to do and so we cast ourselves upon you and and we pray we spend time in prayer communion with you and we spend time uh, listening to you and studying your word so that we can be able to turn around and face the monsters that are there Help us to be a place of comfort and encouragement to build each other up and help lives be changed. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. Take some time and talk to Christ.